0: Thank you. Thank you, Brendan, for that uh, kind introduction. I'm not using this because my computer is uh, here and the lead is not long enough. And uh, first of all, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, and, and respect their values and customs. I also want to acknowledge uh, Dr. Sue Boyd, Professor Samina Yasmin, Professor James Devillan, and all the AIIA members. So thank you for that kind introduction. I think it's not more like a a seminar, it's like a lecture, you can stop me, so we can have a dialogue. There's a lot of things you covered in your area. So I'm going to talk about a diversified food system. So I don't call it as agriculture, let us call it as a food system. Because the food industry is the largest industry in the world, not your (laughs) robotics, not electronics, not medical technology, it is the food industry. And that will be the largest industry in the world till this earth exists. Three times, four times, five times, we need the food. Where is it coming from? So the whole supply chain from the production all the way to the plate and even beyond is food. So in my talk, I'm going to cover about the global hunger And malnutrition. Uh, Last night I downloaded some reports just came from International Food Policy Research Institute which is based in Washington. Unhealthy diets both malnutrition and overeating. Obesity is a big issue. Challenges facing the food security and nutrition security. Then I'll give some examples how can we diversify and then I'll draw some conclusions, so you'll have something to take away. Those all know that, but this is part of my talks, the wonderful university where we are located, and it's so, so nice to show when I travel. I just came back from China after three years of absence in China. Uh, I was there for two weeks, just came on Sunday. And uh, my labs and things are located there, uh, a wonderful university to be uh, here. It's an internationally recognized university, many of you know that. And we are top 100, we're still remaining because, for example, agriculture is contributing to that, I'll come back to that. I think one of the big, good thing about UWA is that well-established partnership with the industry. You compare with ANU, ANU and UWA is very similar in size and so on. But ANU is more theoretical, whereas UWA has got that arm stretching, whether it is in engineering, mining engineering agriculture medicine etc where we are really translating that fundamental cutting edge science to practical solutions of course we are group 8 member but the thing which i'm proud of is that i have been the director of the uwa institute of agriculture 17 years i mean it's 18th year actually it started from this room when robson and others asked me to take up this job and i gave a talk at that time we have 15 in the world a small group of us 15 in the world number one in australia for example uq and university of sydney are very large but we are beating them i don't know how long we can beat them because you know there will be a time when people like me have to slowly move out and we are not replenishing the tank properly so that's something which is really good for us So, we do that in a very small area of southwest of Western Australia, what I call dryland agricultural system. But it has got implications for about 2.6 billion people all over the world. If we do something here, it then has got application in dryland areas of the world. That is about 42% of the global terrestrial area. That's why we're getting so much of reputation. So, it's not just for uh, 4,000 farmers in Western Australia. Now, hunger and malnutrition remain a global concern, as the um, as the uh, Brendan has mentioned. It is a, it's a major concern. I'll show a couple of slides. Again, you know, water, food, all interrelated. We have some serious issues. We thought, when I say we, as the global community, United Nations, etc., thought that we are almost ready to solve the problem. Look at that. Sustainable Development Goal. It's not, we are not going to achieve in 2030 because of various reasons. There's a number of publications. Uh, There's another one coming and you could get a lot of uh, this information for food security and nutrition in the world from there. If you look at this graph, which I just downloaded, this is fresh. So you got percentage here and then got the millions of people here and you got the years from 2000 to 2021. Look at that. We had about number of people under nourished 796,96 million, sorry million, and we were able to bring down that to 572 million. Bingo! We are all wearing, applauding, and said, "Oh, we will achieve the SDG goal by 2030." But guess what? What's happening? It's creeping up. Number of reasons: one, climate change; number two, the war. Ukraine-Russian conflict because, you know, you are all ex-diplomats and others. It's really help, help, not helping us. So we'll be struggling. There's a lot of problems. So now we're back on almost the same and we'll go up. If you look at that, the prevalence of undernourished is also 13 percentage. We dropped it to 78 percentage. Now it's going back again to 98 percentage. So as a global community, we have an issue. This is what I said, uh, trends in extreme weather events. People don't believe in climate change, there are people, but it is happening, believe it or not. So here you can see from 1900 onwards, and the latest data is 2020. You can see that now, of course, the scale is in such a way, but you can see the drought is more frequent. There was less drought here, flooding is more frequent, and of course extreme weather events is getting more frequent. We're living in an era when this is happening. This is affecting the food system of the world. Now let us look at uh, the global ending stocks, excluding China. I don't have the data for China here. And if you look at here, the number of days where the world granary has got stock of food. So if you take, for example, in the case of maize, pretty good, there has been a lot of production, but still only less than 30 days of maize available. What it means, is that if we have further calamities, there is not enough maize to feed the world. The second one, soybean, uh, although soybean is not used as a food, it is used as an oil seed, Is still there about 70 days. But look at that rice gone down, panic. Recently, number of countries stopped exporting rice when the COVID-19 pandemic came and many countries they have uh, weather-related events wheat again we have only 60 days worth of wheat so this is a serious issue it may not be an issue in australia we are lucky but even australia i just gave a talk on can australia supply uh, can australia feed asia that was my talk to the royal society of western australia last year it's on the youtube so we have a problem now coming to my talk um, over 750 million people in the world still hungry people affected by hunger on the rice. It continues at this rate, it exceeds 840, 900 million. This is FAO projection. Economic and social implication of corona is really an issue. That's really added another 150 million. So it put a big dent to our global food security and nutrition. So I am worried about the SDG goal number two, by 2030, we're not going to achieve that. It's a good aspirational target, but the global community has to work towards that. Our region, Asia Pacific, hunger and malnutrition, 381 million and continue to face prevalence. Stunted children, you mentioned that, stunted and wasted children. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I'm also equally worried about Sub-Saharan Africa. (coughs) Sub-Saharan Africa is another place where we have got nearly 250 million facing chronic malnutrition, and also getting some food. For example, Chad, north of Sudan or whatever, that area, and one family's uh, weekly food expenditure is just less than $2. Whereas in Tokyo, 300 to $400 worth of food they buy. So there's an equity problem uh, in the world as well. So the data and other things are shown there, but sub-Saharan Africa, although we have been able to bring down in South Asia, East Asia, sub-Saharan Africa is a big worry, but this uh, graph I created uh, some times ago, so the situation is not that good now. Uh, this is a paper I published in Nature uh, Plans, where again, you look, for example, India, is one of the fastest developing economies and doing well, but look at the plight of the children under 5. I'm sure that Prime Minister Modi will not agree with me on that, but this is the actual data, nearly 38% of the children uh, under 5 are standing. And there is equally about 20% age wasting. That means these children will never have the cognitive development, they will not complete their primary, secondary school, they won't get the proper job, that means the cycle is continuing. Yes. So this is, uh, no, there are different figures. So standing is uh, uh, length in relation to weight. Uh, Wasting is uh, height in relation to weight. So these are two parameters of the growth of children, normal children. So the world average is somewhere here, but you can see that uh, countries like India, Nepal, Bangladesh, all facing problem. Even Pakistan, I didn't put the figure. It's even worst. Let us look at it globally, although the figure is 2019, it is still important. Point number one, look at that sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, and also our Asia-Pacific region. We need to look after those people. I know uh, Minister Penny Wong is uh, very much going there and having dialogues, and Australia and New Zealand has got an obligation to provide help those Pacific island nations. So this is high, very high, and then no data available. And you can see 75% of the children all wasted um, children in lower middle-income group. And 64% of the standard children in the lower and middle group. So Asia leading the pack, 54%, age, and Africa 40%. And that's where we should be focusing our efforts, whether diplomatic efforts, global efforts, and so on. Clear? Now let us uh, look at uh, what is happening, prevailing unhealthy diets. So I talked about the global problem, I showed some of the global issues and what's happening. Very simple terms. There are 300,000 plant species in the world, probably more, but only 60 species contribute to the food, what we eat today. But that is not the story. Only four species contributing 60%, 70% of the calories. Rice, wheat, maize, potato. Although we started having soybean, sunflower, palm oil, dairy, meat, etc. contributing, but this is also a good thing in the sense when we were hungry. After the World War II and so on, we wanted to produce more and feed the world. But that is not the solution because we have some issues. I'll come back to that. So remember, three hundred thousand plant species, sixty contributing the food. And only three four is the major contributor so we neglected all other species this is where i'm pitching the underutilized neglected future smart food crops so what are the problems unhealthy current diet high consumption of harmful food processed meat red meat trans fatty acids sweeteners salt sodium this is very much common in our advanced countries because we can afford to buy and children are all eating there then we're not consuming enough fruits, vegetables, beans, nuts, polyunsaturated fatty acids, seafood, etc. Commonly used, underutilized crops. So this leads to unhealthy diet, malnutrition, risk of non-communicable disease, which is the cardiovascular, standard children, type 2 diabetic, etc. So what are the challenges facing food security nutrition and the food system. So we heard about the problem globally. We heard about some of the diets we are taking and what are the challenges. And of course there will be opportunities. So in summary, the environmental degradation continues to be unsustainable, our natural resource. We are not going to have new land anywhere. Asia, Africa, there may be some new land. There's not going to be new land in Australia for agriculture. So we have to produce more food nutritious food with less resources, water, soil, and so on. Climate change, I have already mentioned, this is really happening. Lack of economic and social development, this is again, people coming from social science, uh, this is important. The cities, the mega cities are growing so fast, so we're neglecting some of our rural areas, including in Australia, right? High birth rates, still, many of the countries, especially sub-Saharan Africa, Near Eastern North Africa, and uh, that's really another problem. We have to talk about uh, um, population. Without talking about population, you can't achieve food security. Education is one way to achieve that. This is the worst one, man-made political unrest, wars, civil conflict, and this is really the, you know how much damage the Ukraine-Russian conflict has done to the world food security? Enormous damage and it's not going to be repaired overnight.
1: Sorry, what's the name no,
0: of the region? Africa near Eastern North Africa. Okay. Thank you. Please stop me again. So what we have to do, we have to bridge the production gap. So the production need to be increased at least by 70% that meet the needs, 9.7 billion people by 2050. So from the current level, we need to increase production. And as I already mentioned, we don't have enough land and resources. And what I call this is the gap. We can achieve that to genetic means. For example, rice, wheat, and maize, and potato, you take uh, the genetic gain by breeding is only happening less than 1 percentage per annum. That's not enough. So we need to have that. But more importantly, it's not only the yield, but the nutrition gap is increasing. I showed you the data. Where the malnutrition, that is the people are not getting enough vitamin A, B, C, zinc, iron and all that sort of things from the food. We can't give them supplements. You and I can go and buy supplements from the chemist, but uh, normal average people can't. So one solution is that why don't we diversify our food system? Why are we depending upon only three, four crops? So that's my hypothesis. In order to solve the malnutrition problem. So let's now look at uh, the diversification of the food system and harnessing the potential. It should not be Africa, it should be Asia. Sorry, I should have corrected that. Now, what is a food system? It's very simple definition. Uh, A food system consists of all the elements, environment, people, input, process, infrastructure, institution, because if you don't have the institutional capacity, they won't do that. So the activities that relate to the production, processing, distribution, marketing, preparation, consumption of food, and the outcome of these activities, namely the nutrition, health, status, socio-economic growth, equity, and environmental sustainability. What a beautiful definition is that. So this is why I love my subject, I love agriculture. So my wife asked, if you reborn again, will you choose agriculture? I said, yes, I will choose agriculture, because it deals with all elements. So this is something which uh, I have been thinking and then I just uh, jotted it down and uh, to get this accepted in nature is uh, pretty hard. Here we talk about rediscovering Asia's uh, neglected forgotten crops to fight chronic hunger. If people are interested, I can send that. Shua uh, Li is from FAO, she's my uh, close friend. So what we're doing is that we need to look at the interrelated and interdependent on components production is one component, post-harvest handling, distribution and marketing, and consumption. (coughs) But uh, the government has to create an enabling policy environment. This is where the diplomats and the government has to come. Everything doesn't happen if you don't have an environment, policy environment. Institutional human capacity development, because these crops, I'm going to talk, there's not a lot of literature, because we have been working and spending money on rice, wheat, maize, and potato, so there's not enough capacity in many of these countries. And of course we need this cold, so-called so uh, regional cooperation, South-South cooperation, countries cooperating together, work under World Food Organizations or uh, United Nations, etc. So that's how I see uh, that can happen. So in a summary, agriculture production relies on few staple crops with a high input requirement, making, making farm more vulnerable to environmental shocks and such as climate change. And that affects the ecosystem, food diversity, and health. So limited diversity in the food system, including consumption, leading to unbalanced diets. We heard about it. Therefore, it is essential to diversify our food system for balanced diet and enhance adaptation to climate change. So I'm going to say that, look, we need to get the fruits, vegetables, pulses. Uh, many of you have chickpeas and other things We just heard from the uh, MC, nut seeds, whole grain, polyunsaturated. So both commonly used and some traditional underutilized crop. So what we did was uh, FAO invited me as a consultant. We organized a number of countries, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Thailand, Um, West Bengal, Nepal, Bhutan, and so on. We asked the experts from those countries to come up with the the so-called neglected and underutilized crop. Why? And bring those information before the workshop happening in Bangkok. From there, after a lot of debates, we said, in the case of cereals, so wheat is not here, a sorghum, pearl millet, finger millet, teff, African rice. This is a special rice, not the normal rice. Then cassava, yams, sweet potatoes and taroes. Then you got some of the pulses there. The fruits and vegetables, a lot of them we know. As kids, uh, I was born in India. Samina is uh, also from Pakistan. Then you got uh, cashews and cummins, etc. These are all important, but they are not in the mainstream agriculture these days. So again, it's available in my paper. For example, we were talking about millet. It's a wonderful thing. It's the international year of the millet, 2023, by United Nations, adapted to dry land conditions, lot of macro and micronutrients, and so on, hush. Moringa, drumstick, even I grow that in my backyard. It's one of the best vegetables in the world. <laughs> Leaves, flowers, and the pots, the fresh pots, can be used in curries and things. Then of course this is the elephant foot yam, wonderful yam, which you can use in various ways. This is taro. Look at that. It's a transient waterlogging. Under waterlogged conditions, it's growing beautifully. It develops a root called aerial roots, which can breathe. And when the drought comes, it still survives. You pull out, you get a lot of tubers. Beautiful, yummy. So these are all the some of the examples I mentioned. So they are rich in macro and micronutrients, including iron, magnesium, zinc, selenium, and calcium. Vitamins like carotenoids, B-complex, C-K, got the details in my publication. Considering their nutritional value, UN General Assembly declared 2021 as the International Year of the Fruits and Vegetables. And we had a lot of promotions from that. In addition to the nutrition, there are adapted to marginal soils. I told you examples of uh, millet. I show an example of uh, taro. Traditional and heritage in the subsistent agriculture economy throughout the developing world. This used to be the traditional. Then the modern agriculture, the Green Revolution came, and we pushed the rice and wheat and maize, and all on a sudden these things vanished. 60 years ago, I went on the uh, on the space and took a photo of the systems in Africa or Asia, I would have seen a mosaic of crop. If I go now and take it, only very few crops. I was taking a fast train from Beijing to Xi'an, and maize after maize after maize, this season, nothing else, maybe two varieties. That's the commercial agriculture driven some of these important crops away from the thing. So that's the policy. So, and, and there's not much research and extension. So what we need is that a multi-dimensional approach benefits to, I mean again, Asia's crops, food and nutritional security, resilience to climate change, adaptation to harsh environments, conserving biodiversity and culture, culture of using that, cooking that, improving livelihood, I'll show examples, and also socio economic development. It can be done. Quinoa is a good example. How fast from the Andean regions it came 5,000 years ago. Now we all have it in breakfast. Or chia, for example. Another example, pulses is another example. So the the global interest started in 20th century. The first one was Convention of Biological Diversity in Brazil, United Nations 1992, FAO, Fourth International Technical Conference on Plant Genetic Resource Food in Germany. Now let us look at one example as pulses, which is my uh, interest of research. So some images of chickpeas, faba beans, lentils here. So in 2016, I was lucky United Nations uh, appointed me as the Special Ambassador to UN for promoting pulses to some 60 countries in the world. I really enjoyed that, and there has been some impact. Not all my effort, but worked with the partners, and that has been including I went to Ulaanbaatar, Mongolia, my first time. So that has been a role played by UN. So they are rich in, uh, in protein, uh, low-fat protein compared with the cereals. Has got uh, rice and wheat, nine percentage only. Amino acid profiles, high lysine, micronutrients, good quality carbohydrate. Good quality carbohydrate means when you consume, it passes through the hind gut very fast. They are bad quality. That leads to colon cancer. Whereas if it takes a longer time to digest and pass, your blood sugar level doesn't go up, your high in gut bacteria and other uh, biome gets very very happy, and you don't you get less likelihood of colon cancer. That's why you know millets and things. So they have high in dietary fiber as well. Excuse me. Yes,
2: please.
0: What are those percentages of huh, this is um, Source areas of uh, various uh, pulses in the world. So you got, uh, for example, chickpeas 17 percentage, and uh, dry peas uh, etc. In the world. So this is the total. Uh, the data need to be updated. But beans, uh, dry beans, that's uh, we use in the Heinz bean etc. Uh, is dominating. Chickpeas number two, then dry pea peas, the split peas, uh, 15. Cow pea, which is uh, black eye beans, which I use quite a lot. you can get that. Other pulses, lentils, six percentage. PG&Ps and broad beans. That's the distribution of uh, production in the world. Thank you. So this is another p- paper we published. We convened a meeting in Zhejiang University some times ago, uh, including some of my colleagues from UWA. We put a paper, uh, perspective article in Nature. The main point I want to say is that uh, global investment in pulse, the legume, R&D, and extension is low compared with cereals. As I told that, cereals, rice and wheat and may still get a lot of research dollars. They should get it. I'm not saying they should. I do work on cereals as well, but the pulses are still. One end is that we don't have enough research and development, human capacity, and the policy of the government is uh, having going towards the major crops. The beauty about legumes, uh, particularly, they have uh, root nodules. In the nodules, there is a bacteria which can fix the atmospheric nitrogen. The nitrogen is manufactured, fertilizer. It is not a a mined Haber and Bosch technology. The Nobel Prize winning chemist invented that. And that helped us to uh, take the world to produce more food. But these species can fix the nitrogen. They use some and leave it. For example, in Australia, now we have wheat, legume, canola rotation. So you grow a legume, lupins or chickpea or lentil, they fix the nitrogen, and some of the nitrogen is then left behind. Then I go as a farmer, plant my wheat or canola, which cannot fix nitrogen, so I can serve a lot of nitrogen. Nitrogen fertilizer is skyrocketing, particularly after the um, uh, Ukraine-Russian war. So, you know, negative carbon footprint, because if you have supply uh, nitrogen in the field, the nitrous oxide emits. Nitrous oxide is a potent greenhouse gas, whereas this uh, species doesn't. So it's very, very important for the soil health. I just mentioned about the interface of the human with their environment, estimated 70% of the one's immune system is located in the gut. Uh, Barry Marshall is not here, but he will tell that that is where your health is. If you know you have gut, you can manage your health. I think many of you know that. And that will be the future medical technology. I mean, is uh, developing a belt where you can wear that belt, so you don't need to go to your gastroenterologist every day, and the belt will record the bug movement, and then from there you can identify beneficial gut, non-beneficial gut. Sue may have a different requirement, I may have a different requirement, then you can have a prescribed food system for you i'm just giving so just as an example but that's what the medicine about it. so inflammation of the gut leads to poor nutrition poor health poor sleep grumpy professors and so on so this is where i just said you know you need to have this this is not this is a serious matter is a serious matter grumpy professors i know you haven't had a sleep or whatever you come and shout at your students so this is where I'm saying the pulses and other other things can do magic wonders. So for example type 2 diabetics. uh, We have got a lot of data from our medical school here. That's how Institute of Agriculture collaborate with the medical faculty. Cardiovascular diseases, gastrointestinal diseases, colon cancer, bottom line is that pulses lower the risk of chronic disease frequently associated with obesity. You take certain amount of pulses every day. You choose whatever you want in your diet. You cook some, I developed a wonderful variety for the Kimberley farmers called uh, Kimberley large. It's a very large chickpea. You buy them, you boil them, keep it in your freezer, add them into your casserole or whatever. You don't need a big recipe or anything, but you can do that. Samina is nodding. Look, this is where Programs need to be oriented. Let us take our own country here. We have a problem with the indigenous community. We have to acknowledge that. And my wife is a special school teacher. She says that they are not really fed well at night. They come and they're lethargic. So she poke on her own money and take some of them to the canteen and buy food. That's what the government has to do, providing breakfast, midday meal program not with junk food, but with good food, then it can make a huge, everlasting difference for this country. It is tried, but I don't think it is sufficient enough. And Sue and others should be able to go. I won't go bother with you that. I think this is a bit heavy. This is a paper I published in PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, United States, they a very prestigious journal to an agriculture person to publish that. It's to do with my Chinese colleagues and Canadian colleagues. We were simply able to show that by having strip cropping or relay cropping rather than monoculture, we can have reduced carbon footprint, increased net returns, increased yield. So what we did was we developed an integrated cropping system that incorporated four key components. Intensified cropping through relay planting, that means just without any stoppage. Second field strip rotation, third soil mulching with available means. and and the fourth is no tillage. And we conducted 16 experiments, 12 consecutive years, and we were able to show 15 to 50% increase in yield, farm returns by 39%. More importantly, carbon footprint, we have been able to reduce 17%. No rocket science, very simple thing we played. And people said, oh, this won't be accepted in uh, PNAS, which is a prestigious channel. It will be accepted. So I pushed and anyway, it is published. So this is just a pictorial way of doing this is in china where i spent the last 20 years this is peas it's a legume it fixes nitrogen i just mentioned it has got wonderful pods, and we can use in your split peas or whatever uh, soup and so on this is corn maize corn is a summer plant so you can see that we have planted this in late winter early spring it's already flowering and it'll be harvested well before these buggers grow up So the core benefit coming out of this can be utilized. And this really um, enormous technology now taken up in in China and other parts of Africa and so on. uh, We use here as a rotation. Again, I just don't want to say too much about it, but if you focus on the grain yield and the carbon footprint on the top, here is a grain yield tons per hectare. Mono means single crop. Relay means one crop followed by the other. Mono relay, so we got pea, maize, wheat, maize. What I'm showing here is that in every case with a relay cropping, it increased yield per hectare. See, significantly. Now if you look at the other graph, the carbon footprint, first one is mono, second one is relay. Every case, the carbon dioxide equivalent to produce one ton of grain reduced. This is what we want for the planet, to reduce the carbon footprint bingo so there is a lot of other data and immediately pna said this is a kind of technology smallholder farmers of asia and africa can use and of course advanced countries like australia can use it's how you mix with crops and get up this recipe don't worry about the detail we also look to below ground it's not only about ground because some species can produce certain organic anions They secrete that through the root system and they solubilize the soil-bound phosphorus. Otherwise, a lot of phosphorus is bound in the soil, not available to wheat and maize. So they solubilize and wheat and maize can take that up. Same with iron. So there's a lot of co-benefits in addition to nitrogen fixation in these species, like such as legumes. Again, this is getting too technical now. I'll go away from that. So food system, production, processing, Labelling and package, this is a good example. Quinoa is labelled and promoted well. You all know about it, earlier you didn't know. Distribution, marketing, consumption, and then intervention, nutrition, labelling, regulation, advertising, food-based dietary guidelines, and all leads to transformation, healthy diets. Many, many examples are there. This is uh, an example from India. This is called uh, Akshay Patra future Smart Food Fair, future food side events. So what they're doing is that uh, they used uh, the school program, instead of giving corn flour based stuff, they started introducing a piece of jackfruit, some moringa, drumstick things. Few, whatever you can get, you can see the rice and few other things, it makes a huge difference. That's where we have to start. If you want to address the malnutrition or the stunting and wasting, in these countries. So that's happening really very well. One example is a place called Bangalore in India. So when I look at the SDG goals, uh, one, two, six, uh, all these things, contribution of diversity. Reducing this one, poverty, food security, zero hunger, land and water productivity, gender equity, climate adaptation, national capacity development, by simply bringing neglected, underutilized smart crops into the system can achieve some of those uh, SDG goals. I'm coming close to my end. So let us lo- draw some conclusions. So this is all summarized in a book. We published, uh, Shuan, and I have published a FAO. Again, I'm happy to give free. It's online available. So we all know now current food system needs to transformation and diversified Asia's, Africa's crops to achieve a healthy diet. That will give protein, macro and micronutrients and vitamins, eliminate malnutrition, hidden hunger and children's problems including obesity. We cannot provide supplements to them in some of those countries. So we need to look at uh, underutilized crops and then we need special attention so that uh, they can be adopted in the farming system. And we need a policy. Without policy, nothing will happen. So if the policy is still diverting towards the, traditional, the, the new crops, then the traditional crops won't get picked up. The, the food system, for example, in Nepal and, and Bhutan, they have picked up and there's quite a lot of changes happening there. So the government has taken an active role in that. Scientific research, both public and private, on these crops is needed and the consumers, good example is quinoa and chia and many other crops, pulses for example, more and more pulses are consumed in Australia, whereas it was used to be only meat and wheat. So things are changing and the number of uh, restaurants available <coughs> has changed in this, uh, in this particular state and this particular city. Coordination capacity development, many of them. I have been spending a lot of time training PhD and master's students. Just today, wonderful lady arrived. She came actually, I was away, from Vietnam. So nice to see. And she said, I want to do PhD. We have been trying for the last two years, COVID restrictions, scholarship availability from Vietnam, UWS, bureaucracy, all those things has delayed, but she just landed today. Developing innovative platforms to allow greater access to the information technology, because many of those countries cannot do everything, so this is what I'm driving that through my role within United Nations FAO. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Dr. Sadiq. I'm feeling very hungry myself. I don't know about you. All that beautiful food. Uh, We we typically have a question and uh, answer session uh, and we open it up to the audience. Uh, I'll walk with the mic so it can be recorded and just introduce your name, uh, introduce yourself, your name and any any affiliation if you'd like to. I'll start with you.
1: you. Yeah, Rob Chivers. My question was going to be what's a, um, a suitable replacement crop for wheat, but you sort of addressed that by saying canola and... Um,
2: legumes yep. but I was, so I was wondering, I'll rephrase my question and sort of say well um, what sort of penetration in Australia is that sort of process taking? Yeah.
0: Excellent question first of all I don't want to replace uh, completely wheat so if you look at Australia is a very good example where we had nothing 200 years ago nothing, no food crops except the indigenous community had a, mainly largely meat-based, fish-based. They had few other things, et cetera, but we didn't have any grains, really. So wheat is our important crop, and we adapted, etc. But then we had only wheat, sheep, and some pastures. That's it. Now, if we look at, uh, I should have put that figure there, I took it out. 1991, 92, the total value of the Australian grain industry was about 12.2 billion dollars now it is uh, close to 30 billion so wheat used to be the dominant at that time now wheat is smaller wheat is still important crop it's not 50 percentage it's less than 40 percentage of the total cropped area at a time in australia so now we have barley oats canola pulses lupins and so on So that diversification for two reasons, one is for sustainability, otherwise we would have had wheat after wheat after wheat, diseases will come and wipe them out. Number two, the benefits I mentioned, number three is the demand, market demand. When I first came and started my PhD, uh, that makes me old, 1981, July 31st, when my wife and I came here to do my PhD, they said, oh, you can't grow chickpea here, you better work on wheat or something. And I said to myself, I want to grow chickpea. Why? I said, I just did this wonderful thing where I compared the climate of Perth, Western Australia, Chile, um, California, Rabat, Morocco, Aleppo in Syria, showing the home of climate. Of course, it is Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere, so the months. So I should have been able to grow chickpea. Why not? So we went to Meriden and started. So. Th- from zero base, now it is a, you mentioned 600 million industry. My variety in Kananara is giving the farmers every year about $4 million, small industry, but it's a big seeded one. So the diversification has occurred. We still can increase. So average farmer in Western Australia still dominant with wheat. In a good system, I would like to see, depending upon the soil type, rainfall, at least a 30% age should be broadleaf crops. So it's happening, canola is happening, but the problem with the canola is canola is hungry. They take a lot of nitrogen, like wheat. They don't produce, so we had to replenish. Remember, we had 26 million tons of grain this year. Last year we had 24 million tons. What we used to have, zero. We used to wait for the ship to come from New South Wales to feed us this state. (coughs) Now we are the biggest producers. So diversification has occurred, uh, and we need more diversification to meet the market demand, but also in a very hot, dry year, some of our wheat may not survive, other crop will survive. (laughs) Did I uh, answer my question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Jean Williams. uh,
2: The pulses and legumes that grew in Africa in the past obviously were sufficient to keep the population then. Why, my question is, why have they diminished? Is it because rice and wheat uh, can be grown more economically? And the second question is, um, are the um, education services increasing to try and redress this issue?
0: Yeah, a very good question. So the answer is... Uh Again, rice, wheat, maize are the major staple. So what you do is that you'll have some rice, if you, if you go, I just came back from Uganda a month ago, worked with six African countries, they will have the matuka, which is the uh, banana stuff, a uh, bit of rice, and, and beans, a lot of beans. So in the case of rice, wheat, and maize, when we had the problem with mal, uh, hunger all over the world, there was a lot of investment and the yield level gone up, huge. And the government also started subsidizing fertilizer, seed, et cetera. So naturally farmers shifted everything to rice, wheat, maize, and they may produce uh, four tons of wheat or maize or whatever, and then they use some, they eat all that, they sell into the market. So the policy of the government at that time was right, because we need to fill the belly first. Now the policy has to change and say, look, uh, you cannot grow, all the time this there should be some incentives given to them i don't call subsidy then it will come then show the core benefits etc some of our farmers in western australia as high as 40 percentage they are not other crops than wheat so rotation and so on yeah yeah so in africa if you look at uh, africa is a big producer of beans the beans uh, anyone who has been to africa every meal they will serve the beans this is our kid kidney bean uh, the the the, the the red beans, uh, speckled beans, etc. Wonderful food. Uh, and then the black eye bean in West Africa, that's in Ghana, uh, Nigeria, big producers. And I ha- we have a project funded by, thanks to DFAT, Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research, my colleague Wallace Cowling and I'm working with six African countries, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, Burundi, Rwanda and Ethiopia. Wonderful people. So our project is going well, we were there a month ago, and now Government of Australia wants to extend that for another two years. We're developing bean varieties with a faster cooking time, because otherwise they have to fetch firewood from, from, from the forest, and the women get raped. And also the firewood is not uh, dry, and the huts, they inhale the smoke. Another problem, lung disease and thing. But also, we, we are breeding for high iron and zinc naturally in the grain. So it's a, it's a wonderful project. So the answer is that uh, it is the government policy changed and new high yielding varieties of rice, wheat and maize, hybrid wheat ma- maize came. So it became more productive and the market was not there and the market driven away. This is the same in India, Pakistan and other places. Now we realize that that has, has got problems on soil, problems on human nutrition and environment. So now we need to rethink
2: Mm,
1: yeah, thank you Samina yasmine i was just wondering you talked about food diversification so would the indigenous food industry provide one a pathway to that diversification and what is the relative uh, requirement for water if we move
0: say from one wheat to legumes yeah. should have put that data thank you the um, the water requirement of uh, producing a kilogram of uh, meat is, beef is the highest, because you have to grow something and feed them. The water requirement for some of the pulses are significantly low, because they don't need a lot of water. So many of these crops I mentioned, like for example millet, water requirement is much less. So the highest is beef, then the lowest in the case of meat is chicken, but uh, wheat and maize, maize is very high whereas in the case of pulses it is much lower. That's the inherent water use efficiency. The question number two is that uh, whether we can use some of the indigenous knowledge locally. I think we can, although we must be very careful that uh, they never had a staple food from grain. There are a few grains and some of the things like uh, the, Oh, I lost the name. Uh, Wattles. Yeah, wattles and and also sorghum. Sorghum, they never grew, but there are some uh, biotypes here. We grow one million hectares of sorghum in uh, New Queensland. But uh, the other one, the vitamin C rich one, kakadu plum, kakadu plum, for example. So there may be some complementarity. There is a group looking at uh, indigenous thing. But uh, again, I just want to make sure that we are not here to replace wheat, maize, barley, etc. We need them. They are the backbone, but how we grow other crops in the system. Yeah, so there is an element that can be contributing to, and, and Contest, for example, is using quite a lot of uh, traditional food, but they will not go as a main meal. They will be what you call niche meals and supplements and so on. Yeah? They have got a role to play. Uh, thank you very much
2: uh, for the interesting lecture tonight. Uh, I've got sort of a two-part question uh, the first part is, uh, with obviously, with monoculture, there's going to be a lot of land degradation. And does this help uh, fix that? Uh, and secondly, does it open up new land to cropping, uh, especially in a place like Western Australia where it's got a, a large landmass and a small population? So, thank you. So,
0: that's an excellent question. Clearly, um, <laughs> I haven't shown again the data. I didn't want to make it too scientific. Uh, having uh, legumes in the system and diversified system, the nitrogen requirement is less and they all follow some of the uh, rotational benefits, so the land degradation can be reduced. Because a lot of the uh, benefits coming in, and then we follow the no-tillage technology and so on. And also if you have got uh, wheat after wheat after wheat, certain weeds and disease dominate, then you have to spray more chemicals to control them, whereas this is a natural way. For example, if you have a canola crop, canola is, anyone knows, just grow like that, they smother the weeds underneath and less weeds there. And then when you come up with a wheat crop next year, uh, you have to have less spraying required. So if you have a good legume crop, fiber bean or something, lupin, they also produce a lot of nitrogen, then you don't need to put. So sustainability is much better uh, in that sense. The second question is. Uh, is it yeah. Yeah, certainly um, uh, there are areas where, uh, for example, millets and things uh, cannot be grown in summer, uh, in winter. They can be only grown in summer. So we have a changing rainfall pattern happening. More summer rain comes in places like Southern Cross and other places so we can have a tactical uh, decision-making what to grow at that time. So the diversity, the crop cafeteria has widened, that means you can play with the season, you can diversify. So there will be, we could expand more into arid areas and so on.
2: Thank you, I've got a a couple of questions. Uh, One is Moringa, which you mentioned. Um, I've been involved with with people who have a lot of ambition for Moringa um, as a crop that can go to non-traditional Moringa communities even in say indigenous communities how bullish are you about moringa as a as a potential solution provider yeah. uh, across countries and regions where they don't typically consume it and and secondly um the other benefit of 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 legumes and chickpeas and lentils and the like is uh the storage of course it can be stored dry and um, does that provide a solution for, say, rural and indigenous communities in Australia? Yeah. And is that being thought about?
0: Yep. So the Moringa is, uh, as I said, I've been growing Moringa because I love to have that in my backyard. And each time when we move the house, and I leave the plant there because I don't like to. And nowadays I have it in a big pot, uh, and then we have it during summer. They don't grow in winter, so they are summer. Places like Brooms and Kananara, and anything north of Jelton, you can grow that very well. In terms of international acceptance, of course, it's a big uh, consumption. India uh, and and parts of Pakistan, uh, Myanmar, and other places they consume. Uh, in their system, they grow either a few few trees in the in the in the buns and areas, whereas commercial cultivation is happening with the new varieties. Malaysia is an example where University Putra Malay, where I been a visiting professor for a while, they developed a freeze dry technology of the flowers and the leaf. So you can really buy a small packet and then you put that in your preparation, etc. So there is a quite a lot of technology, food technology coming in. And I can buy Moringa, drumstick, it is the English name, pots sliced into these pieces from many of the gourmets. I don't need to grow that. So there is a market already happening. But how to penetrate that into the mainstream community only through restaurants and so on. For example, black lentil is one of the premium product. You go to French restaurant, you ask for a black lentil. And black lentil is very, very much. So we have to bring it into the community. As I said, I came on 31 July 1981, hardly any restaurants, even Indian restaurants at that time. Now you walk around, I don't look for Indian restaurants, but uh, everywhere restaurant. To buy a, a bag of rice at that time, you go to Kohl's, and it's only 500 gram packets. And I take 10, the lady in the counter looks you very much, what are you going to do with this rice? Now I can walk with a 50 kilogram rice on my back. So it can be done, but there are a lot of products now uh, in, the, in the marketplace coming in. And people who have been tasting this food, uh, you, you just go to some of these restaurants, you find mainstream people sitting there and eating quite a lot of food. Mm-hmm. So it's happening, Moringa is really taken up in, it's less so in, but all the uh, different communities are buying it. And it's also a common, Vietnam, Thailand, um, uh, Philippines, Cambodia, they all eat Moringa. So you can eat flowers, leaves, uh, you just take the tender leaves and flowers put it in a stir fry bingo very tasty the other question on the,
2: yeah. the legumes and lentils in um, indigenous
0: communities yeah so the indigenous community of course they have not they have not tasted water. what i'm saying is that the children is the best way to bring it uh, the government has to bring good quality i'm not saying it should be lentil whatever we can supply so in India, I talked about jackfruit. Jackfruit is a wonderful, nutritious fruit, right? So they give in the, bra- in the lunch packet, a piece of uh, jackfruit, The seeds have been removed. And, but the kids eat there, a lot of vitamin A and C comes in. Instead of feeding them with the maize flour and sticky stuff, and that's where we have to in- include. And when they taste that, they will eat it and explain them to children are the best. Uh, so we got a grandchild, now 16 months old, and I feed her everything and she just taste and come behind me all the time and so on and so yeah, so 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 Children, we have to look after our children. Yeah. Any other question? Ken, yeah. uh, Ken Pittman. Ken. The
2: um, question is quite simple. Why are these different products not being produced already? Presumably it's cheaper for them to build, to, to grow grains, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. so that's one question. <laughs> then the other one, I noticed two or three times, obesity was mentioned. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the only obesity that I ever see is when I'm walking around Perth or Sydney or Melbourne in an affluent society with plenty of food. So where does that fit in?
0: So the, the question number one is that why they are not grown, why they moved out of the system. I think partially I answered that. This is because of the policy and high yield, etc. Yield is one thing, but look at that, for example, quinoa and chia, how much you're paying for a jar. I don't know whether you guys eat, but I have a jar of chia seed every day and I take a spoon and put in my breakfast. I don't know, people say you are energetic. You have been traveling, but you are always full of energy. I tell you, something which I eat is the thing. I don't take ma- much medicine. And everyone in the uh, university office gets sick. You know, getting, I didn't get COVID, I had four shots. So I don't get the cold, et cetera. So the food I must be eating, of course, thanks to my wife, uh, James, you know, the food she makes. Uh, yeah, so the policy. The second question is, uh, You were, I forget, so I get carried away. Obesity, wow, I should have put the data on that. That's also a problem in China, Beijing. It's a problem in Thailand. It's a problem in India. So in Mexico, you go around this bloody Middle East, full of them. Saudi Arabia, I go there, full of them. So the, oh, go to Pacific Islands. I want to talk to Penny Wong about it. It's really sad, Pacific Islands. They're all looking beautiful, right? And that young. And after that, they cannot even walk. So the problems are a number of problems. One is a highly carbohydrate-rich lack of movement. They don't want to move because it's bloody sweaty and hot. So you have been ambassador there. So you don't have electric- electricity for six, seven hours per day. So you don't have an air condition to go and cool down. So you don't move, you sit somewhere. Then you eat all this bloody starchy food. Then we, Australia and New Zealand, exporting all these potato chips and everything from here salted. We have to stop that. We have to regulate. Otherwise those Pacific Island people, huge obesity there. Uh, been asked to move. Yeah, so it is a problem not, not here. It's also uh, all the developing countries I go to Africa. Uh, affluent people big time big time big time big time and the size of some of these people have gone up so big of course protein in addition to carbohydrate and then the computer and this laptop even for us people we don't have meetings at UWA these days there's no meetings meetings are all online otherwise I had to walk from the south side to the north side five to six times I we don't have meetings it's all online conveniently not enough exercise it's affecting not only developing a developed country developing country believe me or not i've got figures to show
1: so interesting can you tell us about china and what the chinese government's doing
0: what do you want to know china Um, uh, 20 years china is a wonderful country Uh, i got an award again this time, and I said, we disagree with some of the things you do, very boldly. And I also disagree with some of the Australian governments too, I don't agree with everything. Uh, And China is uh, amazing. My first visit to China, I'm sure people like Sue must have been earlier, 1991, as a young person, I went to Beijing, that's like a big dream, going from here to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong scared and landed in Beijing a dark little airport. And they have this trolley, when you push the trolley, the wheels goes this way, you know. And from there, next time I went was 2000. From 2000 onwards, three to five times per year. Amazing transformation. Every aspect, you take it, infrastructure. Chinese are the only country in the world who was able to uplift the people on the ground to the here, India hasn't been able to uplift. I'm just an Indian. I don't have any problem in saying that. I don't know how they did. How does the economy work? I'm sure there are some economists here. The modern theory of economy is not what China has been doing. They were transforming, they were producing massively, and they found market within China to start with. Of course, people blamed about the quality. Now go and look at the quality they produced. Educational institution, I just was showing my photos just fresh to James. The hunger, the ability to adapt. Language is still a barrier. Technical skills, enormous. One university I have published last five years, 100 papers, helped the PhD student. Hunger, world number leading in science and technology. I don't know how they control these things, but I'm telling you that huge transformation or they say the environmental pollution we're now working on improving environment in my field agriculture by optimizing fertilizer and other they just beyond imagination but i don't know how they control i don't question i have enough freedom to walk around good food uh, good educational institutions and a lot of um, free education for normal people amazing country we have to work australia has to work with china somehow we won't agree with everything what they do we cannot ignore china they will be number one when i can't predict in every aspect take your wine if you allow me 10 15 years ago you are a wine expert here 15 years ago Maybe our wine industry was $100 million wine industry. Today, it is 2.8 to 3 billion industry. 10, 15 years ago, a drop of wine goes to China. Now, nearly $2 billion worth of wine goes to China. Enormous, enormous. I mean, I'm not a communist or anything, uh, but what I'm saying is that uh, we can't ignore. I just got five PhD students just arrived from China. I thought I won't take any more. And all Australia, now universities are going to be richer because of the Chinese students coming back again. America, they stopped stopped or less, and Canada. Beautiful infrastructure. Go from one place to the other. Airport, signature, barcoded, what do you want? Every technology you can imagine is there. Every technology: medical technology, engineering technology, agriculture technology, manufacturing technology. Living standard has tremendously improved. Language, English is getting very much there. So,
1: thank you, Professor. You've just mentioned the F word, and I <laughs> didn't mean to ask you about it. Fertilizers. Yes. Now. Um, Artificial fertilizers, we know, already cause a lot of damage to the environment. And how far do you um, recommend them in your um,
0: acceleration of food growth? Yeah, wonderful question Um, uh, globally. Um, Two things, one is uh, if we didn't have the fertilizers, nitrogen is the only one we manufacture. Phosphorus is mined, potassium is mined, and sulfur is mined. So nitrogen is the only one we manufacture, right? Harbor and Bosch technology. If the fertilizer was not there, we would have starved to death, whole world. If we continue to plow the land with horses, we continue to have what we call organic waste, uh, we will not be able to feed the world. So fertilizer is important, number one. The problem has been, there has been overuse and misuse of fertilizer not so much in australia but in other countries australia is uh, still pretty good so a lot of our research is now looking at a balance and using some predictive tools and artificial intelligence robotics etc to predict what is exactly required and providing that we also have significant amount of work going on soil biology and soil bacteria so a combination of uh, what you call mineral fertilizers chemical fertilizers and biological fertilizers coming together and moving us forward. So that's where a lot of research we are doing. And in fact, I'm excited some of the one doing in China and here also we are looking at uh, things like biochar and organic manure. What is the synergistic effect? What is the bad effect? How the crop residues are returned back to the soil? A huge amount of work, exciting area. So we will see the amount of fertilizer reduced in future so that misuse can, because it's uh, uh, costing farmers money. So if you optimize, because plants cannot drink like baby drinking milk, it will be lost in the soil, it will be lost in the atmosphere. So we understand when to apply slow slow releasing fertilizer, biological, chemical mixed together, and then we can have a diagnostic system and that will help us in the future feed the world in a much more better, what I call green, evergreen revolution. Have a green
2: revolution. All right, we have time for one more question. Uh, Some new person. I'll give that. I'm
1: just wondering about um, gene- genetically modified foods oh, yeah. that we hear about and how it affects our gut and
0: our body. So, have you
1: got anything maybe you want to share yeah. on that? And yeah. So I it?
0: didn't. I didn't uh, touch that. So look. Uh, It's a very good question. And in fact, uh, the the lot of, uh, we have got something like um, 150 million hectares of genetically modified crops in the world. In Australia, we have only at the moment uh, um, two crops genetically modified commercially grown. One is uh, cotton. The other one is canola, including in this state. So let us take a cotton as an example. Previously, before the genetically modified cotton, farmers used to spray eight to nine times of aircraft going around Griffith and uh, other area spraying chemicals. And the insects became resistant and we were not controlling health issues, cost escalated. Now 99.9% of Australia's cotton is genetically modified and there is a 25-year history, if you go and Google, you will get that download, the benefits. (laughs) of that so to date there has been no non uh, documented benefits and un- non-benefits although cotton we don't eat the cotton seed is crushed and that oil is used to for cooking purpose the cloth we wear it doesn't matter canola is another example uh, south australia was a state stopped and we were doing and it's doing wonderful thing i just uh, take a drive next time to Geraldton, Minganu, morwa malawa all that area and go and look at the wonderful wheat crop. Previously, if you drove, the wheat crop was full of uh, wild radish. Wild radish is just like the same as the canola family, and people spray herbicides and got a problem. Now they grow the herbicide resistant canola, so they grow that, and they spray one time, and they kill all the weeds, the uh, wild radish. So they have a weed free canola, and they come up with a wheat crop, which doesn't need a lot of herbicide spray, so they reduce that profit gone up. Now with the food crops, which is corn extensively grown and eaten, including maybe you may be eating your corn chip from genetically modified corn from Argentina or uh, US, um, quite a lot of uh, soybean grown and many. So today, the United States um, National Academy of Science in the United States has done a extensive study, it's again, shows that there is no documented scientific evidence that genetically modified crop is harmful for us. So take your wheat today. 10,000 years ago there was no wheat. It was an accidental cross between two grasses. Then another cross accidentally happened and the modern wheat originated. Being a geneticist, the DNA is the DNA, there's nothing. Only what we're doing is that we are now precisely controlling. There's another technology we are developing called CRISPR technology where we are not bringing any organism. We go into a particular crop, look at the DNA. If we want to silence that DNA, we stop it. And then the other one is expressed without any modification. So, but GM technology is not the solution for everything. It is a tool. But good regulatory framework in Australia and other countries helping us. So amazing, uh, India for example, the cotton farmers used to suicide every year, because they grow this cotton, take the mortgage from the bank, the cotton mold both worm, both comes and bore everything, finish it, they have suicide. Now they grow genetically modified cotton for nearly 15, 20 years, amazing discovery. So there are good and bad in science, like anything else, but you just need to regulate and go forward. So it's a tool. It e- it is good, so I will eat. It's like organic agriculture versus non-organic agriculture. My some of my friends, who doesn't know, they pay a banana sixteen dollars a kilo or something, and I just buy two dollars banana. And okay, I'm losing my hair, but that's not because of that. <laughs> so yeah, there is no evidence. Uh, there is no clear evidence there are. Yeah.
2: Thank you very much. Uh, that was really fascinating. Thank you for your questions, um, and that enriched. As usual, our dialogue and our discussion. Can I invite Oliver to maybe say a few words and our our secretary, secretary. and uh, vote of thanks and uh, a little gift for our guest speaker.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Siddiqui. Um, very interesting to hear about food security and uh, that we really need to be food smart about what we eat. and. Uh, obviously still an area that we can uh, definitely explore and learn a lot about. It's very interesting to hear about, especially with the, uh, the legumes and all the beans. And It reminded me actually of a lot of Italians I used to work with, how many have gone vegan, and uh, how, you know, they say the benefits, more energy and everything, so they're definitely getting me uh, on board. And uh, it's definitely, I think, the, all the diet is, you know, you are what you eat. So I think uh, that's uh, quite a great takeaway from this. Uh, But thank you very much for today. (laughs) Shukriya. And and thank
0: you very much again uh, about the diet. You talked about the Mediterranean diet and there is also clear evidence that uh, things like dementia can be minimized uh, by having some of the food. We talked that in our our paper. So they looked at uh, cross-sectional studies in certain parts and found that why that part of the country, without telling the names of the countries, why there is less dementia, it's to do with the diet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate.